everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters. With your questers, Josh and Dan, I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's podcast, we will be discussing all things quizzical and partially trollical. And I couldn't think of a better word, so I'm sorry about that in advance. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> We're used to this from me. But if you have any questions about anything you've ever heard us talk about, want us to talk about, or going to talk about tonight on uh, this exact episode, so contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. How are your holidays, Josh? They were good. Happy New Year, everybody. This is the first episode of 2023. We made it to 2023. <laughs> going into our fourth year. Hallelujah. Yeah. So we okay also were opening the year with some emails. Absolutely. Yes, we got one from Brendan. Hi, Dan. Hi, Josh. Is it true that spirits will accept karma as bargaining chips when dealing with name givers? Do they take a one-time amount, or is it an X amount of karma every day for the next X days sort of thing? And to what end do spirits use this, or any, karma? Yes, <laughs> it is true that they do. Whether it is a one-time thing or an amount over a period of time will depend on the exact arrangement made between the spirit and the person who is striking that deal with them. And the spirit would use karma the same way that they would use karma in any other kind of fashion. I mean, mechanically, it is a bonus die that can be added to most tests that the spirit can make. From a more in-setting standpoint, it is just sort of magical energy that karma represents in some sense, in some capacity. An oomph. Yeah, um, that just gets given, you know, perhaps as, as a little bit of life force or something along those lines given from the adept to the spirit. But yeah, the spirit would use that for whatever they would want to use that for, whether it's just simply to narratively kind of bolster their own strength and power, meaning that they've got a little bit more power in order to do the things that they want to do or whatever. That's something in those negotiations that is easy in one sense to mechanize, because at that point you're talking about a specific resource that the player character is able to give up in order to do that. But that is certainly not the only type of arrangement that could be made if you, as a game master, want to come up with something a little bit more narrative in terms of a task that the spirit wants them to perform or anything like that, then that works as well. It's just that karma is a resource that could be spent, and it's sort of magical in a sense, so it is something that could conceivably be given up by one party Fair and enough. given to so the other. They can essentially use it for whatever they want to. Fair enough. Last yeah. question from Brendan. Actually, I correct that. He's the second email. We'll get there in a sec. Do horrors have uses for karma beyond powering their abilities? Thanks for all you do, all your hard work on the podcast, Brendan. Yeah, I mean, again, mechanically, no, because from a mechanical standpoint, that's what karma is, is it's an additional resource that could be mm -hmm. used from a narrative standpoint it's not really clearly defined but one of the things that you could perhaps consider given the need for horrors to somehow be able to remain in the world would be to perhaps represent karma as a 
measure of their strength, uh, a measure of the strength of their connection to remain in the world. Again, that is not a simple thing as saying, oh, once they're all out of karma, they get (laughs) sent back to whatever nether realm spawned them. But a horror that does not have karma does not have the the power that one that does has. And you could conceivably, if you want to come up with a horror that perhaps if it isn't able to feed on the energy that sustains it in terms of the negative emotions or torment or whatever sort of thing is their chosen food, that perhaps in a sense they could be starved out. But again, that's something that would be a specific solution to a problem that you might come up with for a horror in your game rather than a broad this is the way that horrors work kind of thing because one of the defining rules of horrors is that there is no consistent rule that works the same for them (laughs) across the board (laughs) as we will discover as we explore particularly some of the named horrors that are coming up here over the course of the next few weeks yeah yeah we'll be getting into those uh deeply I guess is a word you could use for that. Yeah. You know, karma is a sort of game mechanization of the idea that the horror needs to sustain itself in some way on the life energy or emotional energy or or whatever of name givers or other beings in order to sustain itself. And in the rules, the horror can gain karma by doing certain actions and sort of feeding on it you know, on, on people and stuff. So that's kind of a, of a kludgy mechanic, mechanistic way of modeling that narrative trope that is kind of broadly true about horrors. Fair. If you want to look at it. Understood. So we got one more follow-up question from uh, Brendan. We know there's a spectrum of intelligence and cunning throughout the types of horrors and the intelligent ones can plot and scheme how aware are those horrors of the cultures, politics, and organizations of Bar Save? Do they also know about horror stalkers? And if so, what do they think? I am sure that there are horrors that are pretty aware of the organizations and politics and peoples of Bar Save and will use that knowledge to cause problems or to leverage conflict between yeah. groups or whatever. I am sure there are also horrors out there who are aware of horror stalkers and their opinion on them, (laughs) I imagine would depend on the horror. I bet that there are some horrors who really like the idea and find it really, really tempting and tasty to try and corrupt or break a horror stalker and others that might decide that because of some of the powers that they have, it's better to find other prey that doesn't have the same abilities to cause them problems. And so, again, like so many other things, it would depend on the particular individual horror and how much from their background or personality you decide to use Well, yeah, I figure the the horrors are hunters. That's what they're here for, is, you know, to get their foodstuffs, per se. They're hunting their big game. So obviously those with more magic, like adepts, more tasty, whatever the case may be, but the more pain and suffering they can cause, yeah. So they're going to study their prey and leverage everything they can 
to make good use of it. So my yeah. two cents. So definitely the more intelligent and more, for lack of a better term, human the individual horror is apt to be, I would think the more likely they would be to have knowledge or information about the peoples of Bar Save and the political organizations and such in order to do things like that. Because even on a small scale, some horrors really like the idea of turning name giver against name giver, even like within a care or small community or something, and being able to read the relationship web of a place in order to turn that to your best advantage is something that some horrors definitely oh, would yeah. be interested in. And at that point, it's just a matter of scale. Fair. Yeah. Cause some, some operate on a smaller scale than others and some like a really large scale. So we have a longer email from Nicholas. Uh, I think this is not exactly a first time emailer, but we'll take him. Dan and Josh, congrats on making it to 150 episodes, three years podcasting, despite so much personal adversity is something to be proud of. While I'm two episodes or so behind at the time of this email, I'm currently rereading Never Deal with the Dragon in audiobook form, I could not let this momentous occasion pass unmarked. Thank you, Nicholas. So my group is currently running an alternative campaign while our normal Game Master deals with some personal issues and the holidays. As such, we are running a Tuscrang Riverboat-based game. For this game, I decided I'd do something different. Normally, I play some flavor of magic user, with a preference for necromancers. Thank you, EverQuest. However, after the last Fredonia Con and playing in one of Josh's games as a dwarf warrior and having a blast while doing it, I've been trying to play different things. I also didn't want to play a, a, a cliche, so Swordmaster was right out. Yes, yes, I know. I'm to scranging wrong. While I did eventually settle, of River, settle on River Raider, Sky Raider variant from Morgan's blog, I did briefly consider Cavalrymen. However, their lack of a racial mount was disappointing. How was this allowed to happen? To Scrang are, as Josh says, great. This clear bias, if not outright discrimination against to Scrang cannot be allowed to stand. Windlings, orcs, humans, dwarves get racial mounts. Some even get several options. To Scrang needed an amphibious mount option. Speaking of Fredoniacon, as is it happening in 2023? If so, I have one small request. Please don't hold it the weekend after Valentine's Day. Uh, the girlfriend and I are going to adventure away. A bed, uh, a bed and breakfast that you get to play D&D all weekend. Uh, for that weekend, and I would hate to miss Fredoniacon. I and one of my pl fellow players were recently alarmed to hear that Josh is not playing in any Earthdawn games. What happened to Legends of Barsave and the Redeemers of Synoch? I mean, it sure looks like it pod, pod fading, but the story isn't complete. We must know how it ends. Even if it's in all your deaths at the hands, tentacles, of a horror. I can has more episodes, please? Okay. There's and a lot going on there. <laughs> So we'll, we'll start off there. To take these out of order, yes, we are planning FredoniaCon in 2023. Uh, we've been having our internal discussions and kind of setting out the schedule of what main room panels and events and stuff like that that we're going to do. Yeah. And then those of us who are going to be running games to try and fit games around that schedule. Unfortunately, it is planned for the weekend after Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. I just checked the, the calendar on that. It is the weekend of February 17th through 19th. Sorry. It starts the, the evening Eastern time on the 17th, I think, with uh, opening ceremonies at 7 Eastern or something like that. 
and then stuff going on a good chunk of the day Saturday, and then most of Sunday kind of wrapping up around 6 or 7 p.m. on Sunday. Yeah. We will be doing a live Earth on Survival Guide from FreedoniaCon again. Uh, that will be on the Sunday early afternoon. Yeah. I think we, we decided yeah, like to one o'clock, work out on one that. 1 o'clock Eastern, noon Central. Something, something, like, something that. like that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we will announce that when it gets a little bit closer, but I'm sorry that you will have to miss it because of your life stuff. But yeah, if you're going to have the opportunity to go to a place and, and play games all weekend, do it, do it. It's the same thing as a con. Yeah, (laughs) really? So that's the situation there. Legends of Earth Dawn. Yeah. The game wrapped up, gosh, a while back. Uh, Yeah. Because I know in terms of the episodes that have come out, we're kind of like descending into Care Synoch. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've had the big fight against the the horror yet in those. I, I'm like three or four episodes behind on that. So we're kind of like in the middle of that. There was a whole bunch more that we did in the aftermath of that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we kind of finished up another big story arc. And then at that point, we had been playing for like three years or three and a half years. We've been playing for a while. Yeah. And it was just to the point where things just kind of like, yeah, this is a good place to stop. We'll kind of wrap up there and and maybe do something in the future. As far as actually releasing episodes, that is all up to Cliff and his time and desire to release those. Mm -hmm. I don't know whether... What he's going to end up doing if he gets back to that is to just release up to the end of the Synoc arc so that we get that With a- conclusion of that, because that was kind of the big overarching story that, that went through there or whether he's going to do more from there. But it was a lot of fun. But um, as a lot of games do after quite a lot of time, just kind of life and other things came along. And so the the game wrapped up. It did not fade we all kind of made a mutual decision to wrap things up for various reasons and so that's yeah, like kind of where things went there 55 or some odd episodes it should be plenty that's all that's been released <laughs> I know. thus far i know there's probably another like depending on how they get broken up quite a number more depending on if cliff wants to go through the the work of releasing them yeah but that's that's all up to all up to him fair enough fair enough all right. Now, river, river mounts for Tuscrang. River mounts for Tuscrang. Okay. Part of this has to do with the fact that in first edition, Tuscrang could not be cavalrymen. Yeah. It was racially restricted. Tuscrang could not be cavalrymen or beastmasters. And so there was not a need to develop a racial mount for Tuscrang. However, I seem to recall. Maybe in the Serpent River book, maybe in some other source book somewhere, there is a picture of a Tuscrang riding some kind of water mount, like a, oh, like yeah, a semi-seahorsey yeah, yeah. looking kind of thing. It's a, it's a river steed. It's a, Yeah, it's a river steed. And I think it's in the Serpent River book. I yes, could be mistaken, somewhere. but that sounds, yeah. that sounds right. That would be the closest thing. If you want to go with that amphibious or mm-hmm. or waterborne mount for Tuscrang. I also know that apparently the the Kastulami Tuscrang, there's a detachment of them that came with mm. the Triumph that rode Griffins. 
that there were some Griffin yeah. riders, I think, that were part of that. But the River Steed, which, uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure is in the original Serpent River source book and might have updated stats in one of the third edition books, possibly. Likely um, Kingdoms of Barsave, the Serpent River, like the Serpent River yeah. book that they did for, for third edition. Nations of Barsave, I think, was the, the book series on that. There has not been, as far as I'm aware, an update to fourth edition for those stats. But that's where I would look to if you really wanted a to scrang aquatic mount. That's, yeah, and we brought up a house look. hang yoke last episode or so with you know giant giant river. Yeah, homes, but there's no picture of that. <laughs> yeah, there's no there's no picture or even stat block. I don't think for the I don't recall seeing a stat for block them. Those. No. But yeah, if there is, then then that is another possibility as well, although that is one that is, at least narratively speaking, would probably be restricted just to House Hengyoke. Yeah. No, uh, I, I know the River Steed because my I play a Seventh Circle to Strang Scout, and I got Spirit Mount. So instead of making it look like a horse, I chose the River Steed because you can make it look like whatever animal you want to be riding. It's mostly a horse, but no, how much a Strang? So I chose the River Steed on purpose. And so I knew that one quite well. But yes, I agree with you. There needs to be more to Strang River mounts or aquatic mounts. Page 122 of the first edition Serpent River book is the, the River Steeds. It resembles a large sea snake with fins. House Ishkarat are said to breed the creatures and train them to swim along the water's surface and respond to bridle and bit. Yeah. Some tales even claim that a member of the Denarastis clan has formed an entire regiment of river cavalry composed of riders on river steeds. So, yeah, you could kind of look at the stat block for them in the Serpent River book and maybe come up with a fourth edition version of that. It's certainly from a looking at the stat block in first edition real quick would be suitable even for a, a starter mount. Again, with the problem that it is purely aquatic. Yeah. If you're running a, a riverboat based game or a river game, then that's probably not a huge problem. But mm -hmm. obviously for any game that's going to be wandering away from the river could cause issues. Yeah, slightly more inland might be a problem. Uh, oh, yeah. Nicholas has more. A couple of episodes ago, Josh made a comment that you didn't want players to have the golf bag of magic swords. Never mind. They can only use two at a time. Three if you're discrang. While I absolutely understand the limited resource concepts behind limiting the numbers uh, to threads a player may have to their primary talent, including allowing more threads for additional thread weaving talents would open up slots for magic items for cheap by just picking up a new discipline or thread weaving talent via versatility. The downside to this makes upgrading your magic gear as you advance extra costly, to say nothing of the lack of utility for thread weaving for non-spellcasters. Also, for some of the more long-lived opponents, only having at most 15 items to keep track of, assuming you build your opponent's rules as written, makes justifying certain plot line and intrigue involving the immortals harder. I mean, what's the likelihood Alakia misplaces her magic mirror of vanity? Spoilers, Alakia is the basis for all wicked stepmothers and evil queens in folklore. However, if she had to keep the track of 30 or 60 or more thread either intentionally bound to her pattern or spontaneously created over the centuries, I'm sure misplacing one or two could be the basis of all sorts of adventures in Earth Dawn, 1879, or even Shadowrun. Of all the talents, threadweaving probably needs the most tender loving care. Even for spellcasters, perhaps a rule that allows for more than 15 threads, but you must max out your first threadweaving talent before you can gain the benefit of a second and then a third and then a fourth in the fullness of time. I don't know. Perhaps with diminishing returns, 
possibly. Uh, first, thread moving talent, one rank equals one thread slot. Second, talent, two ranks equals one thread slot after maxing the first talent. This is getting complicated. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me say that I understand what yes. you are saying. A lot of this desire comes from, oh, I picked up a second discipline that has thread weaving, but it's not a magician. What is the point of having this talent if I can't use it to gotcha. make threads to items? I understand that desire to not have useless, quote unquote, talents or to have, you know, legend point sinks for something that you're not getting any use out of. It is a a similar kind of desire that drove some other design choices for fourth edition. I completely understand that and I recognize that and I hear you. My question is, how many games are out there really that are running into so many thread items that people want to weave threads to they are running out of ranks on their thread weaving talent. Yeah, because how much stuff are you finding? That's my first thing is like, how many magic items, how many thread items do you actually have? Now, understandably, five of those slots can very easily be taken up with a group true pattern because that can take up to, can give you up to five threads. Completely understand that. And I think part of it is that what may happen a lot, and, and this may not be the case with this individual, but just broadly speaking, kind of thinking at it from a what you actually encounter in the wild of gameplay kind of thing is that somebody will get up to sixth or seventh or eighth or ninth circle, right? Get into those higher journeymen, maybe low warden, lower yeah. warden circles and have their thread weaving at rank seven or eight or nine or whatever and have those all filled up by five group pattern threads and, you know, three or four magic items, thread items Mm -hmm. that they might have, and then picks up a second discipline and is advancing their second discipline because from a sense of progression standpoint, and this is something that has been an issue with Earth Dawn since the beginning, the speed of progression that you get or the feeling of progression that you get once you're into those higher circles Picking up a second discipline or a third discipline where you can advance a bunch of talents, multiple ranks for the same amount of legend points that it costs you to raise just one or two talents in your primary discipline. There is definitely a sense of I'm feeling the progression that I had back in my early days, but I'm not getting any more out of my primary And so I'm putting all these points into this other stuff, but one of these is a talent that I'm not using. Why is there this restriction? I recognize that. (sighs) Nothing's ever perfect. You know, at that point, it's like, well, my primary discipline, I've got, you know, I'm a circle eight. I'm I'm at the top of the journeyman tier. I've got a rank eight Mm -hmm. thread weaving. So I've got three thread items and five group pattern threads. So that's all maxed out. For the amount of legend points that I could increase my thread weaving to rank nine, I could increase the thread weaving in my second discipline up to rank five or six and suddenly have five or six slots to weave additional items to. Yeah, okay. Like, again, I understand that incredible investment of legend points that would be needed if everything has to go off of your primary discipline. I don't have an easy answer for that. I don't really think that the 15 ranks is 
a huge limitation. Again, how many thread items are you actually going to be having in your game? I am much more likely to kind of hear people complain that, oh, I wove to a novice thread item when I started out my career, and that's great, but now I'm circle eight, and that four rank thread item isn't really doing me much good anymore because it's limited to whatever. Completely unofficial. (laughs) A couple of things that you might want to do if you are finding in your group that this is really a problem. Maybe keep the, the 15 limit and just have it be divided amongst the two. But I would say that you would need to keep track of which thread weaving talent the item is bound to and make the tests with that appropriate talent. I mean, that feels a little bit more finicky. But again, I'm running into the situation of like, I mean, and and this may be just a difference from where I'm coming from in terms of items and the way that somebody else is. Are there really that many items that you're going to come across that you're going to want to bond to? Oh, maybe. Okay, I guess so. And also like the narrative thing with regards to Alakia or other major powerful creatures that are otherwise limited. Look, when it comes to things like that, if you want to talk about great dragons or immortal elves or whatever, they can break the rules. That's what they're there for. Even setting aside the thread item limit that we kind of have in place here in fourth edition, pattern items themselves were pretty limited. You could have like five minors and three majors and one core or something like that, I think was the was the breakdown. It doesn't matter how powerful or significant the individual is. There were there were still limits that were in place in terms of how many of those things could exist. So you're not going to see us come up with any kind of official support, I don't think, for getting around those limits that we have in place. But if you at your own table want to do otherwise because of the way that your game is running and it will make more fun for everybody at the table, go ahead and and do that. We're we're certainly not going to tell you that you're playing it wrong. It's just not something that we're likely to put out any kind of official support or rules to do it. Largely because, again, as we've talked about in other places, the more items you have, the more the more attention you need to pay to those items to make them pay off in terms of their narrative importance. And if you're not doing that, it runs the risk, not that that's necessarily the case or that it's not something that you might want to do at your table, of cheapening the value of thread items and the amount of work that should go into them when it comes to insetting characters increasing their power with these legendary items. I think that all made sense. I hope so. If it did not, Nicholas, follow up. And we'll get you... We'll get you we'll- Look at you taking care of from after that one. So last one from Brian, frequent emailer. We love Brian. Uh, I just finished listening to episode 151. Great job as always. Keep up the great work. Working on it. The question about downtime and various thread items resonated with me a bit. The last campaign that I ran, I had an adventure in mind that the majority of the adventure would take place over about the space of a week. However, I also knew that I want my characters to grow and advance during that time. The solution I came up with was twofold. First, as the intro adventure, I had them discover a care as in the wastes that had been breached by horrors. Since the characters were first circle, there weren't any real horrors left there, but there were plenty of bad guys along the way. 
In searching the care, they discovered a number of thread items that had belonged to the prior inhabitants. They also discovered the history of the care and its, pre- and its, its preceding village. This put the thread items in their hands, along with access to information that would answer the key knowledges either drawn from written history or ascertained from their investigation once they cleared the care. That they had some thread items that they could begin to try to access. When they returned from that adventure to, to Travar, they had some downtime to try to learn the key knowledges. The next part of the adventure was going to be very time-sensitive. It took place over about a week, but it was something where they could need to increase in power to second or third circle over that time period. To deal with this, I got rid of the timing and training requirements for advancement. I told them that they had learned enough during their training that they could advance in circles at novice tier without further training. This hand-waving allowed them to hit second and third circles during the adventure during the time I had set for the adventure, but also did not open the floodgates. They know to advance to fifth circle, journeyman tier, they would need to find a trainer and go back to advancement as written. When we paused... Almost everyone was at fourth circle, and they were all headed to Thrall. I would not do this with every group or every campaign, but in this instance, it allowed me to run the adventure that I wanted and still have character advancement. Brian. Yeah, that's a great story, great example. I really like the sense of, I'm going to give them the items that all kind of come from the same place and provide them with a good chunk of the information that they will need in order to weave those threads to those items yeah. later on. But they would still need to perhaps go through the item, the regular, obviously the, the regular item history yeah. roles in order to, we need to know the name. Well, let's go through and do a little bit of research and all of this stuff that we found. And we have that information already. Okay. We need to find out who created them or who forged them or whatever. We've got yeah. access to that information. The information still came about as a result of an adventure. It's just that you got the information before you needed it, in a sense. And I think that's fine. I don't have a a problem with that overall. That's not a bad way to potentially address the problem if you're concerned about potential pacing issues. Wouldn't do it every time. But that's like you said, it worked for that one. Yeah. For the one off. Yeah, I I wouldn't necessarily do it every time. When it comes to the sort of time crunch adventure thing, that's fine. I don't know personally that I would hand wave the advancement rules quite that same way. I would perhaps look at either having the adventure be designed where they would not need to advance during that short time period, or rework the idea to allow them time within it if they kind of needed to. But that's just me. And if for the sake of something that you want to have happen, because I understand sometimes that a time pressure or a deadline is important for pacing or tension or whatever kind of story-based reasons you might have, that's fine and great and wonderful. It just becomes a question of how true do you want to be to the narrative realities of the world as they are laid out yeah, and that sort of thing. When all is said and done at the end of the day, if everybody kind of comes away with an engaging experience, then I don't think it's a huge problem overall. Yeah. If everybody had fun, you win. Yeah, ultimately. That's it. But, and again, 
you knew it was a one-off. You knew you stretched the rules the one time. You knew that it wasn't going to be this way forever. You laid the expectation right. so nobody's heart was broken or just massively disappointed. I think it's fine. Y'all agreed ahead of time. This is the rules for this one case. Then we'll go back to regular rules as written. That's it. I want to tell this story. Tell the story. That's all that matters. Really good story. So, yeah, no issues there. Uh, so we're 35 minutes into the episode. We can probably talk a little bit about Throlic, sorry, Highland troll culture a little bit before we, uh, as kind of a teaser, before we get into the actual troll moots that we're going to talk about in the next episode or so. Initial thoughts on the Crystal Raiders, Josh, before we get into some major things. They're a fun little, they're a fun little uh, band of, I can't say malcontents, yeah. but they're, they're a different, they're a different breed. Then <laughs> there is a sort of stereotype when it comes to the Highland trolls and the Crystal Raider culture. But as we will find, as we look at the various moots that populate the Twilight Peaks and other parts of Barsave, that there is actually a, a notable variety amongst them and uh, different approaches and attitudes and cultural traditions and philosophies that they have that are all sort of recognizably troll, but also different in their own ways. Yeah, Highland Trolls differ from Lowland Trolls, but we'll get to those in a minute as well. So uh, I always was curious why they were just called the Crystal Raiders. A, sounds cool, uh, so go with that. But B, all of the Crystal Raiders as a, doesn't matter the troll moot, take the moniker of Crystal Raider from their weapons and armor because those crystals are mined from high mountain peaks. And all of them have done that. Right. So as a collective, all of the Highland Trolls troll moots are essentially crystal Every team in the NFL is a football team. <laughs> they all wear different colors. We're going to go with that. But I find it hilarious that the, uh, the troll moots themselves call what they do. The Troastia. that is their crystal Raider moniker, which to them stands for either Thunderhead or my favorite Omen of doom. Yes. And you have to say it that way. You just have to, but for most crystal Raider, uh, groups and troll moots, the principal unit of organization is, as we've talked about with troll culture before, the clan. And a clan kind of operates by line marriage. And so it's a huge family tree that's not necessarily interconnected by DNA, if you wanted to go that deep. Uh, but the clans can contain many married partners and extended families. So if you joined your two farms together by marrying this person off to that person not getting gender involved, then yes, now those two farms together are a clan. They operate as such. And many clans belong to a troll moot. And in troll, the troll moot is called the Altrua Agaral. Wow. A lot of apostrophes in this one. Which means the clan of the people of one mountain. So that's where that whole thing comes from. So we have the troll moot, the clan, and the Altrua Agaral. Clan of the people of one mountain. But in broader terms, the Trollmoot is an alliance of many clans joined by honor, oath, mutual determination, and the troll word for moot home is Alheim, which I find hilarious. It, it sounds like Old Norse. Yeah, well, there is quite a bit of Norse flavor and inspiration <laughs> that comes into the Trollmoots, the Highland Trolls in particular, because... The broad concept of the Sky Raiders and Crystal Raiders is basically Vikings in flying airships. Yeah. And so there is a lot of inspiration that comes from, you know, at least kind of 
slanted a certain way uh, when it yeah. comes to the troll moots and their philosophies and the way that they approach things. Exactly. Because, yes, the, the the Crystal Raiders on as a whole, d- d- doesn't matter what troll moot you're on, yes, they raid other settlements, farmers, villages, other airships, the Thera, Thrall, take your pick. But inter-clan raiding is still a continued long-standing tradition because most of this stems from just overall troll culture. Highland, lowland, doesn't matter. If you are strong enough to keep what you have, then you deserve to keep it. And the trolls test that every single time they raid someone. So the trolls think they're strong enough to take it from you, so therefore they deserve to have it. If you're not strong enough to defend it, then you don't deserve to have it. And so this is, I can't say toxic masculinity, but that's the the view that the trolls en masse, Highland, Lowland, troll moots, have, is if you are strong enough, you deserve it. Yeah. Either physically strong enough, mentally strong enough, or if you've prepared your defenses strong enough, take your pick. And a lot of that comes from the harshness of the Twilight Peaks, which is where that culture originally derives from. It is a very harsh, unforgiving, difficult to survive environment. And so the folk that grow up there and their culture develops there is shaped by the environment. It's a hard scrabble existence. <laughs> yeah, the fact that in order to survive in the first place, you need to be strong and you need to be able to rest what you need to survive from this difficult environment. The various moots come into conflict because of their need for resources and raiding to take those resources from each other. There's a very specific type of cultural milieu that will develop around that Mm -hmm. and the philosophy that kind of grows out of that. And so then that culture, which develops around this idea of strength and in order to survive, you need to take what you need and therefore the strongest, the ones who can take what they need deserve that. Um, And that ties into the the legends of the gift from Jaspery and various other things when it comes to Highland troll culture, that they believe that they were blessed by being given this harsh environment to live in because it has made them strong in a lot of ways that sort of the myths explain why things are the way that they are or provide justifications or reasons for certain cultural traditions to exist. Yeah. And then when that culture comes into conflict with another culture, lowland culture, whether that's trolls or others, that do not have their existence defined by the same type of struggle, it's still difficult for subsistence farmers in the lowlands to survive and to be able to eke out their existence. But there's a different kind of thing that comes out of that. And so, you know, you end up with this kind of cultural clash of priorities and philosophies that date back centuries in terms of cultural traditions and that sort of thing. So it's really Agreed. kind of cool. Yeah. And real in in a sense. Agreed. You can find a lot of examples historically for this type of culture with that hard scrabble existence that needs to, A, take care of themselves, but when they don't have enough, go get it from somebody else so that they can keep on living. Now, that'll take more than they need. The trolls do have... so. 
all of this has been longstanding with the trolls since before the scourge. Yeah. Then there was the scourge and they're still doing it. So there's still the interclan raiding. There's still all this tradition going on with how they live their lives. Yeah. I mean, it dates back to before the Orichalcum Wars, if we want to talk about how far back this goes in terms of a yes. cultural tradition amongst the Highland trolls. Yeah. And then the Orichalcum Wars, I was just going to get to that, offered enough spoils with all of the airships flying around to draw all of the trolls out to attack non-Crystal Raider airships. And so they said, oh, oh, we can hit everybody else? Let's do that, because there's a lot of spoils we can we can have now. And just a matter of proving themselves and throwing themselves into conflict and battle to continue to demonstrate their superior strength and way of life. Yeah. And then, of course, the amount that they were doing that uh, drew the attention of the Therans, who then went and blew the <laughs> snot out of them and said, okay, enough of this, we're going to take control. Raiding other people, that's fine. Don't mess with our stuff. Yeah. I just don't want to see a whole airship full of trolls. I mean, for Pete's sake, one of my favorite pieces of art ever is the Crystal Raiders source book. Matt Wilson's cover is still one of the best things ever. I'm glad I have it in a three, in a two by three poster. It's lest everybody think that the Highland trolls are just thieves because they're not. No, they have an honor code about it because again, they have rules. If you're strong enough to main, to, if you're strong enough to keep what you got, good for you. Then you deserve to keep it. But there are certain things. They have a a, fra- a, a little one word phrase, kaalabor. Honor is the brother of of life. So honor is the brother of life. If you do not have any honor at all, the trolls just call you kava. Mud. Which means mud. Which means you are worthless. Not anything at all. Now, we've talked before in the trolls section many, many, many episodes ago, like 100 episodes ago, that there are three levels of honor for trolls. So again, they have rules to their raiding. There is the personal honor, your kator. There is the clan honor, the katral. And you can't mix that up and say kach. There's no C-H noise in there. It's a T apostrophe. So K-A-T apostrophe R-A-L. So Katral. And then there's the Katera, which is loosely translated to as the racial honor. If you insult one troll, you insult all trolls, something along those lines. So, And again, those are largely concepts that are more strongly defined within the Highland troll culture. And so yeah. in that sense, the Katera, the racial honor, is more an honor of the Crystal Raider way of life, the Highland Troll way of life. In their yeah. own way, there might be extreme cases, uh, and we may talk about some of them as this series progresses, that view yes. Lowland Trolls, those who do not follow the Crystal Raider philosophy as not being trolls or being an insult themselves by the way that they live of being an insult to Highland Katera. Yes. That they are sort of insulting troll honor by not following the way that trolls should live. Mm-hmm. And so it is, you know, very possible to have that sort of thing going on. Yeah. So that's our little primer on the Crystal Raiders. So a couple of episodes from now, we'll actually get into the individual troll moots themselves, where they live and kind of the surrounding areas, because where they live is important to how they raid and we will get there, but we wanted to tease you. Uh, emails didn't feel like enough time tonight, so we're going to just kind of let it go here with that is the primer on Crystal Raider culture and a little refresher course on Highland troll and or troll culture. Any other thoughts? 
Well, what I would say, there's a lot more in the Crystal Raiders book that goes into various rituals and traditions and details of Highland, of the, the sort of broad commonalities of Highland troll life, the way that line marriage works, rites of, of passage and rites of becoming an adult and yeah. things like that, their relationship with the passions and various other things like that, mm-hmm. as well as airships and, and raiding traditions and, and whatnot. There's quite a bit in the yes. book that we're that we don't have the time to really go into Fair. particularly depth here, <laughs> but it's definitely worth picking up if you don't already have it in hard copy because you're newer to the game, mm-hmm. picking up the PDF of Crystal Raiders of Barsave from either the Facet Games webshop or, or drive through RPG and yeah. uh, get a taste of all of the kind of cool troll goodness, troll goodness <laughs> that uh, that you can get from that book. Yeah, it is a well-written, well-explored, well-thought-out series of cultures. A, trolls as a whole, B, clans secondary or troll moots secondarily, uh, then Highland and Lowland as well. So there's layer upon layer and, what's the word I'm looking for? Nuance to each one to really make them stand out, which I hope you stick around for the following episodes because we're going to get there. Yeah, Primarily, uh, the book was written, and a lot of the information was from uh, was from Steve Kenson. Yeah, who did some writing for Earthdawn, but is perhaps a lot better known for a lot of the work that he did for Shadowrun uh, back in the FASA days, and is of course still uh, in the industry today. Uh, works primarily with uh, Green Ronin, and um, does has a lot has a long list of credits to his name, and he's a he's a great guy. Absolutely. So, uh, wonderful stuff. So if you have any questions for us about something we did not cover with trolls, or you want to know more about with trolls, drop us a line at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, go practice raiding a village for your legend. Good night, everybody. <laughs>